afternoon to you all. Let's go before our Lord in prayer. Father, help us of our ears and our minds attentive to your word. May your spirit come forth and fill us, equip us, and help us. May it convict us where we are missing the mark that you have set, that you have created. Above all things, let Christ be glorified. Amen. Our final topic for today on why marriage matters will address the question, why one flesh matters or why being one flesh matters in marriage. Now, as we've gathered, marriage matters because it is a picture, an illustration of the relationship of Jesus Christ and his church. We've looked at many ways that we present an accurate portrayal of this heavenly relationship, and we are being warned of the distortions and the false depictions of marriage that we create when we don't get our roles right as husband and wife. One of the greatest ways that God's institution of marriage has been distorted and defiled is in the area of sexual intimacy and what being one flesh has become to this world around us and even to ourselves. Where God's good gifts are the most wonderful and beautiful to behold, where the sweetest eternal truths and greatest delights for God's church are displayed, we find Satan and those who wish to destroy God's glory being on the strongest attack. Sex has been distorted and defiled in ways unimaginable. The consequences of this sinful attack are visible all around us and experienced by each one of us. It matters that we understand and live out of what God intended sex to be. It matters for our souls, for the sake of your marriage, for the sake of your spouse, for your family, in the world around us, and it matters most of all for the glory of God and His gospel. Yes, being one flesh is God's good gift of sexual intercourse and intimacy inside of a marriage, and it is one of the greatest illustrations of Christ's relationship to His church when biblically understood and practiced. Now, Before your minds start racing, let me begin by setting the stage using some parallel examples in a way that can help us start to contemplate what it is that we are saying and what we are not saying. God created human beings with appetites. Okay? Webster defines an appetite as an instinctive desire that is necessary to keep up organic life. Uh, recently, I've gone through Mark Shaw's book on the heart of addiction, and he identifies five main appetites that God created human beings with. And these aren't too hard, right? We've got an appetite for food, an appetite for drink, uh, for work, for sleep, and for sex. Now, these are necessary appetites to sustain life. Our lives are sustained by these instinctive appetites that, that God has given to us. In excess... And when they are used wrongly, each of these become idolatrous and sinful. And yet, 
God gives them to us as good things to be enjoyed and necessary for life on earth. Excessive indulgence of appetites is called idolatry. Uh, It is in excess or outside of the bounds that God has given it to be enjoyed. Excess in food we call gluttony. Excess in drink we call drunkenness. Excess in sleep, the sin of laziness. Excessive work we call the sin of pride or works righteousness. Uh, Excess in sex and outside the bounds is fornication and adultery. Now, we are going to see that these instinctive appetites were given to us to help us understand a a thing, an illustration, a, a way for us to comprehend who Jesus Christ is in all of His fulfilling work as our Lord and our Savior. They demonstrate spiritual truths that are necessary to be understood for eternal life. You understand that? If you don't believe me, let me prove it to you. Food is a physical, uh, our source of physical sustenance and nourishment. Who is Christ? The source of spiritual sustenance and nourishment for our souls. John six thirty three. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Area of drink. We need physical refreshment and purification for our body. Christ is our spiritual refreshment and purification of our souls. John seven thirty seven on the last day of the feast. The great day Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Area of sleep. We need physical restoration. Right? Christ is the fulfillment of our spiritual restoration. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Hebrews 4 verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Uh, Our appetite for work gives us physical purpose and productivity. Christ is our spiritual purpose, and His works have produced a spiritual redemption of God's people. He has accomplished regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, and glorification. Christ has done this. John six twenty six. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are asking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent. Christ demonstrated God's works. He fulfilled the works of the law. He accomplished the work of salvation. His life was lived on purpose for this end. And he has purchased a multitude of souls from every tribe, from, from every language, from every nation. He has brought forth eternal fruit in his church. Now, there is much time we could spend diving into each one of these. Uh, but here's the point 
you understand that we don't literally need to slice up Jesus and eat and drink Christ's blood in the physical. In the Lord's Supper, we aren't re-crucifying Christ or any other of the Roman Catholic abominations that misunderstand this very principle. We do this in remembrance of Christ. These physical realities, they all demonstrate spiritual truth in ways we can understand and digest. Now, don't get hung up on needing to make an allegory out of each of these appetites in such a way that seeks to match every physical element to a spiritual truth. I'm going to say that again for our purpose today. Don't get hung up as we start to look at the ways that being one flesh points us to Christ and His church by trying to connect every physical element to some parallel spiritual truth. Understand what God intends for us to take from these illustrations and allow them to do what He intended to do, to point you to Jesus Christ as the eternal fulfillment. Keep that in mind. Now, let's think about a few things. When were these appetites given? When were we made to get hungry and thirsty and tired and to do work? When did God say, the two shall become one flesh? In the beginning, prior to the fall, before sin came into the world, Now, was it just some mere happenstance that mankind fell into sin and then God uh, decided to utilize all these created things to show us the spiritual truth about Christ and salvation? No. No, from the creation of the world, God made things in such a way that this temporal, physical reality would demonstrate to us spiritual, eternal truth. It was His plan all along. That's what we need to see and understand about God's design and purpose of a man and a woman coming together in marriage and becoming one flesh. God created this. God ordained this. God, in fact, uses this for His own purpose. Now, one more brief thought here to contemplate. What was the only thing that God originally created that he said was not good? That man should be alone. It was not good that man should be alone. And what does he do? What happens? Out of the flesh of the man, he brings forth a bride. Does that sound a bit familiar? Does that ring any bells? Marriage has always been a foreshadowing of Christ in the church all along. There are physical realities that demonstrate spiritual truth in a matter that we can grasp and we can understand. The very life-sustaining appetites and actions in our lives were designed by God to help us see Christ as the fulfillment of each of them. So let's dive into our topic today. What is the purpose of being one flesh in marriage? I'm going to give you three things. Procreation, pleasure, and promise. Procreation, pleasure, and promise. Uh, The Greek for procreation uh, is making babies. Literal, direct translation. Uh, Pleasure 
to be enjoyed. Okay? Promise to help us understand something of the glory of being united to Christ for all eternity. That is the purpose that God gives to us of being one flesh in marriage. Procreation. Not only do two become one flesh in marriage, as we've discussed, they produce flesh from being one flesh. Job says, You clothed me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. The psalmist writes, uh, as we read in Psalm 139, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my, my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully, wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Now contemplate something here. God has ordained this means of being one flesh for the creation of human beings that are made in His image. And for the creation of souls that will never die. We, we jump over that one real quick, right? For the creation of a soul that will exist for all eternity, this is the means that God has made to bring souls to bear in this world. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him, male and female, and God blessed them, and God said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. Psalm 127.3 Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Let me exhort you here to interact with children as a blessing and a reward, not a burden. It is good and right that we stand against abortion and anything that ends life after conception. But even in our anti-abortion Christian culture, far too often we treat the fruit of the womb as a curse and as a burden and as something to be avoided for the sake of convenience. And not as a reward. Number two, for pleasure. A second purpose God has given for man and woman, uniting as one flesh in marriage, is for pleasure, for enjoyment, for delight. For delight. Pastor Nick read from Proverbs 5. And let me just highlight. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Be intoxicated always in her love. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Be intoxicated always in her love. Fill you at all times with delight. God has created the human body to enjoy sex. He is the one who made us in this way. He created anatomy. And He fashioned the human body, and he designed this act to be pleasurable for both husband and wife. We've looked at the Song of of Songs here, a poetic display of the love and the enjoyment of a husband and wife in their marriage union. It became a, a Jewish custom to not allow children to read the Song of Solomon until 30 years of age. John Gill writes in his commentary on this book of the Bible, it has always been received and esteemed by the ancient Jews as a valuable part of the sacred writings, calling it the Holy of Holies, forbidding their children to read it because of the sublimity and mysteriousness of it until they were at years to understand. 
And we don't have time, but let me give you just some brief excerpts. Chapter 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Verse 16. Behold, you are beautiful, my love, my beloved. Truly delightful. Chapter 2, verse 6. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. Verse 16. My beloved is mine, and I am his. Chapter 3, verse 1. On my bed by night I sought him whom my soul loves. Chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Verse 7. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Verse 9. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. Chapter 6, verse 3. I am my beloved's. And my beloved is mine. Chapter 7, verse 6. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Verse 10. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Notice the, the husband and wife here are ravished. They are delighted. They are fully satisfied in one another. Their desire and their love are abounding toward each other. And not only does God create the bodies and the appetites and the institution of marriage where the two shall become one flesh, but He gives us His holy and perfect Word to illustrate the love of a husband and a wife in the most poetic way. It is right. It is God-ordained. It is God-commanded and God-written that our marriages should be filled with enjoyment and pleasure and delight. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. Have your mind renewed according to the Word of God. And I realize how incredibly difficult that is when we swim in a culture that defiles and makes fun of and and distorts this thing that God has created as good and right. Be renewed in your mind. Be transformed by the Word of God. And, And this is where I think it is so helpful that we step back and look at what is going on here. As Pastor Mike set us up from from Genesis to Revelation. What is the one thing that God wants us to understand about the future of our union with Him? What is the picture? What is the way that He helps us to contemplate? To help us understand something of the glory of being united to Christ for all eternity. Uh, If you want, go ahead and turn to Revelation. Please, if you would. And and we're going to look at the very last part of Revelation. Pastor Mike read in in chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. The Bible uses the wedding day as the picture of what Christ being united to His church for all eternity will be like. Jump ahead now, chapter 21, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. 
And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And then finally, in the last chapter in in 22, we read from verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will be they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. When a man and a woman honor God's design and they keep themselves pure for the wedding day. There is such excitement and anticipation and looking forward to that final day. For the man and woman pursuing God's design for sex inside of marriage, the beauty of being one flesh only increases after year one and years five and 15 and 25. The beauty of oneness is not a one night stand. It is a lifetime of delight and pleasure and pursuit that only increases and intensifies the joy of being one flesh. Why? Because it points to something greater. Something that only you can understand. The only picture we have to show you something of the pleasure and of the delight that heaven will be. God directs our minds here. Now do you see why this is so defiled and so drugged through the mud by Satan? If he can distort this, what is he distorting in our minds? The glories of heaven and the glories of union with Christ. We need so much repentance and renewal here. It, it's, it's remarkable. But to see this for all of its beauty, it's glorious. It is wonderful. And if we, the more we have our minds changed and renewed to see what God has intended for us to see here. The best pleasure, the greatest delight in a God-honoring and God-glorifying marriage is looking towards what is yet to come. The world knows nothing of the glories and delights of being one flesh inside of a Christian marriage. They know nothing of this. Be unashamed in this, brethren. One of the greatest lies and deceptions in the hand of Satan is sexuality as the world would have you to understand it. The lust of the sinful flesh uh, is powerful, and our flesh is weak and unable to withstand this temptation on our own. Pray to the Lord and ask for the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit to renew your minds and protect your marriage from your sinful flesh. You are the greatest enemy here. The world's going to feed it to you, and your flesh is going to be tempted by it. And that appetite... It's actually drawing you to the greatest of joys and delights. Being one flesh as a husband and wife is one of the greatest defenses and most powerful weapons in a Christian marriage. And this is why marriage and sex are under such great attack. This is it. Now, with all this hedonism floating around, I thought it appropriate here to read from John Piper. Marriage, at its exquisite peak of pleasure, 
speaks powerfully the truth of covenant-keeping love between Christ and His church. And that love is the most powerful force in the world. It is not surprising, then, that Satan's defeat, Christ's glory, and our pleasure should come together in this undefiled marriage bed. Brothers and sisters, one thing remains. One thing has been withheld until that day when we enter paradise. The greatest pleasure, the most wonderful delight to behold God Himself in the flesh face to face. The best is yet to come, brothers and sisters. Now, the rest of our time, we're going to spend looking at some of the spiritual truths that are represented in being one flesh. I'm going to give seven ways here that we're, we're going to look at. Now, I didn't come up with these examples on my own. Uh, years ago at a marriage retreat at uh, Scott Brown's, one of the elders there taught on this topic. And uh, if you will, allow me to borrow from those categories, but apply them in, in my own words. While these are not explicitly taught, uh, rather implicitly, uh, they may seem pretty obvious. And we're going to look at what Scripture teaches about being one flesh in marriage. Then we're going to look at the same truth that is taught about Christ in the church uh, from another passage. And then we're going to look at the practical ways in which we honor a God in being one flesh according to this truth. And ways that we would defile our marriage bed. Okay? Hebrews 13.4 Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Where we get these wrong, not only do we defile our marriage bed, but we defile the reality of the truths they point to in Christ's marriage. You think God cares about that? You think that would matter to Him? Does it matter to you if someone were to defile your wife? Do you think it matters to God if someone defiles the picture that He's given of what it is for Him and His bride to be united for all eternity? This is a fearful thing that we are looking into. Have great reverence because this is God's picture that He has created. Do not defile. So three, point three here, spiritual truths represented in being one flesh. The first one we see is the exclusive relationship. I think someone mentioned the exclusive relationship that we have Look at Matthew 19, verse 4. Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife? The two shall become one flesh. Quoting back to Genesis. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. How many there? Two. Each Man should have his own wife. First Corinthians tells us we're going to go there in a bit. Each woman should have her own husband. Let a an elder be a one woman kind of a man. Now Ephesians 5 we looked at told us that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head 
of the church. We read in Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is one body, one church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an exclusive relationship. The first one we're looking at here. An exclusive relationship. Romans teaches us that it is by faith that we obtain righteousness and access to the work of Christ. Faith that God gives us by His grace. Hebrews 11 tells us that it has always been by faith that God's people have been accepted. It is We have an exclusive faith. It is by grace alone. It is through faith alone. It is in Christ alone, by Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And let this not pass over you. You are to have an exclusive affection in your marriage for your spouse. They are your husband, your wife, and there ought not be any other. And we defile this picture with things like fornication, when we participate in being one flesh outside of the covenant of marriage. Things like adultery, where we bring in other other partners into that marriage bed. Things like pornography, where we invite the world into our eyes and into our minds on multitudes of devices. Self-gratification, lust, All of these defile the exclusivity that we are to experience and that we are to example. Because this is not about you. There is not other ways to be saved. There is no other way to God than through His Son, Jesus Christ. And there is no other way into the church than by faith. It is an exclusive relationship. Instead of being a picture of Christ in the church, you are a portrayal of idolatry, harlotry, an unfaithful head and an unfaithful bride. There should be no one else that shares this marriage bed. A husband and a wife. Exclusive affection and exclusive delight for one another. And where we miss this mark, we defile the gospel of Jesus Christ. Understand that. As rampant as this is, there there are pastors that have taught that every man is obviously going to be engaged in self-gratification and pornography. This is wrong. This is a a vile misrepresentation of what God intended. And, And the reason why this gets so marred and why our minds have such a hard time even the Christian culture has basically given up and said, hey guys, we, you're, just, you're not going to beat this one. No. That is wrong. If you have no power to stop these sins in your life, you do not know Christ. You need to repent and believe the Gospel. You are deceived and have a false faith if you have no power to repent and turn from these things. Jesus died. For the penalty of sin and the wrath of God. And He died to take away its power and its presence from your life. That is not preaching perfection, brothers and sisters. That is preaching a Christ who put sin to death at the cross. 
And we must, we must not allow. It's easy. Maybe that's something you've never struggled with. Right? And then we talk about lust and see what Jesus had to say about that. Strive for purity and holiness, dear. Strive for ex- exclusive affection and have your mind point you to why that is so important. Why you would never fathom that Mormonism or uh, Islam or uh, these false religions are ways that we access God. It is Christ alone. We, we would rebuke the, the works-based mentality that we have to do all these things. That, no, 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 no. It is faith in Christ alone. Number two, second spiritual truth here represented in being one flesh. This is an unashamed relationship. Unashamed relationship. One of complete openness. Genesis 2.25 The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Hebrews 4 verse 13 says this, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. All completely exposed to God, to whom you must give account. Every thought, every action, every word exposed to God and to be judged by God. How is it that we can approach Him without shame and without fear? Because Romans 8 tells us, there is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, Hebrews 11 tells us in verse 16, As it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For He has prepared for them a city. What happened after the fall? Nakedness represented shame. Adam and Eve, they, they would cover themselves. They were ashamed of what they had done. They wanted to hide from God. Guilt and shame is immediately felt when we practice or participate in sexual immorality. The results of sexual immorality in the world around us, and if we sin in these ways, is emptiness, loneliness, shame, guilt, fear, discontentment, resent, embarrassment. You see, the lie is that sexual immorality will fix these things. When all it does is blow them exponentially into master problems. Major default. That is, that is the lie. It only deepens you in the loneliness and the shame and the guilt. There is one solution that God has provided. And it is marriage. It is being one flesh in marriage. God has designed us to be naked and unashamed. With no guilt. With nothing to fear. In Christ, God's church is unashamed and without guilt. Pure, holy, undefiled, clothed in His robes of righteousness. And let me just stop here and say this. You, brothers and sisters, have received that forgiveness from your Savior. This is an area where we all have fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us gone astray and defiled this beautiful picture that God has intended for us. And we all need forgiveness. And if you have been forgiven, you need grant forgiveness. 
one of the ways that we defile this marriage bed is by causing our spouse to feel guilty, ashamed, embarrassed because of their past sin, present sin, and or future sin. It's one of the ways we we mar this image, this wonderful openness, this wonderful uh, unashamedness. The, the other way I think we want to apply this, the openness here to communicate freely with your husband, with your wife. There, there should not be fear, right? This is one of the ways we see the culture around just defiling this. We, we have husbands and wives who have fought so hard to maintain purity or, or uh, children or, or young adults that have fought so hard to maintain this purity and now they become married and it's as if it's a subject we shouldn't talk about. No, no. There is openness. There is active communication freely. This, this one place, your marriage is a safe place. And if you, husband, or you, wife, cause this to not be a safe place, you defile the picture of free and open forgiveness that the Lord Jesus promises through the blood of His Son. It's important that we get this right. It's important that we grant forgiveness. Not only for past sins, but for ways that we will fail one another. Bitterness, unforgiveness, hostility, these things defile oneness in marriage. Christ stands ready to forgive. If you sit here today and these things, and you're like, man, I've got this thing. I don't even know what you're talking about. I have defiled and, and am stuck in sexual immorality and don't know where to go or what to do. Christ calls you come. Receive the forgiveness that He has paid for. Repent and turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Number three, uh, to know and be known. Uh, This is a truly intimate relationship. The Bible uses these words, uh, Adam knew Eve, his wife, to describe being one flesh. 1 Peter 3, verse 7, that Pastor Jeff touched on. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. John ten twenty seven says this, Christ speaking here, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. There is one thing that separates you. One thing that is unique to your marriage that you will share with no one else. It is this. The knowledge that you have of your spouse is uncomparable to anyone else and ought be uncomparable to anyone else in this world. This is a the only way in which. I, I remember being in, in Kenya and showing the guys a picture and trying to help us understand this concept of intimacy, of knowledge, right? And I can show you that picture and say, here's my wife, I'll tell you a few things about her, but do you know her like I do? No, 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 I mean, they don't even know her like some of you would know my wife because it's a picture. You can't know somebody by a, a picture. In this way, we know one another more intimately than any other relationship on the planet, and it should be protected. God has set you apart to Himself, beloved. And if you thought your spouse knew you well, He knows you 
better than you know yourself. Christ knows your failures. He knows your sins, every one of them. And He died to pay for them and suffered God's wrath in the place you deserve for them. Not even your spouse knows you as Christ knows you. Husband, seek to understand and know your wife intimately. Look at the the language here in 1 Peter 3. As the, the weaker vessel, deal gently as with a delicate vase. As, as if this is the most expensive and costly relationship that you possess. This is how you are to interact with your wives, husband. Not in some brutish manner. Not, not in some break the door down. No. That is defiling. Look at the way Christ has come to you. Look at the patience. Look at the, the way that He has covered your sin. The way that He has beckoned you. Come. Interact. Deal gently. Learn. Understand. Know your wife. And, and God promises, promises us this. If you lack intimacy in your marriage, you will lack intimacy with God. It will mess up your prayer life. If you lack understanding, knowing, caring, dealing gently, graciously with your wife, your prayers will be hindered. We defile sex and we defile Christ's example to know His bride when we have no interest in our wife outside of being united to God. Can't say amen again. When we have no other interest, men, than in this, we defile this picture of true intimacy true understanding. Knowing your wife doesn't begin with physical intimacy. And get that picture of what of what God is trying to tell us here. The best is yet to come. Right? Knowing your wife begins with cherishing and delighting in her as Christ does His church. Cherishing and delighting in her just as Christ does His church. Number four, joy and future joy. Joy and future joy. Uh, just... Isaiah 62, verse 5. As a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. When you come to your marriage bed, you should come to bless and bring joy and delight to your spouse. You should come uh, to bring joy to your home. Husbands, when you come home, you are the joy bringer, the joy giver. Where did you find joy in your life? Was it not Christ who loved you? Was it not Christ who made you know of the joy of forgiveness of eternal life? Husband, you are to model this. Bringing joy. Seeking not only your interests, but one another's. Seeking to outdo one another. This ought to be your heart and your desire as you come to be one flesh. Be resolved to bring joy. And and let me not step over this. Be resolved to be given and receive joy. This 
is not merely a relationship of duty or obligation, but of joy and delight. Sometimes our minds get so messed up in this way. This is a a joyous occasion. Christ delights in His church. He rejoices over you, beloved. He rejoices over you. Husband, rejoice over your wife. He brings you joy. He expects us to rejoice in Him. The greatest of these, what did Jesus say? Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Why? Because when we are there, there will no longer be faith when we see Him. No longer hope when we have arrived. It will be love for all eternity. When we seek our own joy, when we come in selfishness and for our own delight, and that is our number one primary importance, we defile this picture. When, when we come and we bring grief and we bring harm and we bring sin, we defile this picture beyond comprehension. We distort it. Uh, I want everybody, if you would, turn back to 1 Corinthians. I think this is so helpful. If we, we looked at the passage that Pastor Nick read and, and uh, as I've counseled and interacted and talked with husbands and wives this can be a challenging discussion and I think it's only challenging because we start in chapter 7 and not chapter 6 so back up to verse 14 chapter 6 verse 14 and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Shall I take then the the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Why? Because of that union. Because of that mystery. Because of your body now being purchased in a possession of God's and members of the Son of God, the Eternal One, who made the heavens and the earth. You've been joined to Him. Why would you go join yourself to any one of these defiling ways? Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Here he's answering a question or a statement that the Corinthians made here. And he says, but because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Christ gave his church 
his body. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit has now indwelt us and has made us part of his body, members of it. You are not your own. Do not join Christ's body to sin. Husband, your body is not your own. Wife, your body is not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You have become one spirit with the Lord, beloved. And this points us to the promise of the indwelling spirit, points us to that future glorious union with Christ. It is a down payment that we have. And it reminds me of of Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This, this freedom of access in relationship. This freedom to come and, and be one together. How free is this free access? What's off limit? Whenever, wherever, however, whatever ways? No, this freedom is within the bounds and within the picture that God has given. Uh, let, me, let me say this very, very clearly. If you are seeking to recreate what you have seen in the world, in, in sex and being one flesh, in your marriage bed, you are defiling it. God gives you His Word and His picture here. It is one of purity, one of holiness, one of a, a picture of Christ in the church. And this is where we must have such great openness and freedom to talk about this. If, if your conscience is... is defiled because of the when and the where and the how. Discuss this with your spouse. Listen to one another. You both have a picture that you are trying to give to one another. That you are trying to please and bless one another. And if, and if that is distorting in your spouse's mind or in your mind, then you must talk about these things. You must turn away from any ways that you're allowing worldliness to creep in here and trying to recreate that. Get pastoral care if there's irreconcilable disagreements here as a husband and wife. This is one of the greatest areas of conflict in marriage. Money and sex, right? This needs great attention, compassion, consideration for one another. Start with the Word of God. Open up your Bible and create what you see here. Sacrificially give to one another. Don't come demanding your rights. Do not defile the freedom that you have by guilting and deriding your spouse. And and do not deprive one another. Listen, to deprive one another of this good gift, is to invite Satan into your marriage. Don't do that. The problems that come from that are real and significant. Do not deprive one another. One caveat, to focus on the reality. (laughs) To focus on the antitype. On the thing that this is pointing to. For prayer and for fasting. Now, there may be times and seasons where you are physically impaired due to a number of reasons. And I I want you to understand something in this. 
Christ is sufficient to sustain you in this area. You can consider and care for your wife in such a way that you do not need this in your life now. If God can do it for the one He gives singleness, then He can do it for you for a couple of weeks or months. Right? Now, a word about frequency here. What does this imply in chapter 7? Do not deprive another, except perhaps by agreement, but then come together again. Regularly and often seek to honor Christ. I'm going to offend two-thirds of you here. Well, I'm not. Martin Luther is. Uh, Martin Luther said, had this uh, humorous poem, Twice a week, hundred for a year, should give neither cause to fear. Now, let me just say, if you are so needy that you actually disobey the Word of God and are not intoxicated and are not satisfied and are not delighted in your wife, mainly speaking to men here, you are defiling what God has created and intended for you to experience. If this leads, if if intimacy with your spouse leads you into temptation, you have a wrong view of what is going on. You are defiling your marriage and you need to have your mind renewed to be intoxicated by the love that you have with your wife, to be fully satisfied in her if this is a selfish motivation, if there's never full delight, you need to repent. And a note here about the difference between what it means to be the caretaker of our wife's body, like it talks about in Ephesians 5. And I'm going to pick on that word. We ought to be the caregivers to our wife. Husband, if you neglect to care for and cherish your wife's body, in its entirety, you will not receive the joy and pleasure that God has intended for you and your wife to be receiving. Not only that, but but your pleasure and your delight will also be diminished. If you view your right as a husband to be the taker of your wife's body and not the caregiver of your wife's body, you will mar the beauty and the picture that God has designed for you and your wife to experience. Does Christ, as the head of His body, have concern for His church and its development and its protection and its growth? Does He cherish and nourish His bride? Or does He sit back harshly and and coldly with little care or concern? Just mere subjects and possessions. No. What compels you to serve Him? What compels you to give your life for Him? What causes you to seek Him? What urges you to suffer for His name's sake? 2 Corinthians 5.14 The love of Christ compels us. Love causes us to live for Him who died and rose again. Husband, does your love and care for your wife, does your nourishing and your providing for her physical and emotional and spiritual being compel her to give yourself with joy and delight? If you receive the kind of love that you give to your wife, the kind of attention that you give to her physical weakness and emotional struggle and spiritual difficulty, 
would it cause you to want to lay down your life with joy and delight? Or would it cause you to think of yourself as an overworked, unkept, neglected possession? Wives, your respect and your submission to your husband will draw out this kind of love. Husband, this Christ-like care for your wife and for her body will draw out her affection and delight. It will remind you of the sixth thing we're going to look at here, of the covenant relationship that the groom makes with his bride. Proverbs two sixteen and 17. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Marriage is a covenant before God. There are two things that make a marriage. A promise and being one flesh. We are not married until these two things come together. This is what marriage is. A a promise as husband to wife, a covenant before God, that this is my husband, this is my wife, till death do us part. And we are reminded in being one flesh, we are reminded of this covenant that we have, of this covenant that we made. Not only that, we are reminded of God's covenant, of His promise to His church to one day bring His bride home to heaven to be with Him. You see, the world wants the pleasure without the commitment. Right? They want the benefit without the responsibility. Be reminded of your vows. Be reminded of your union. And and use this as a means of reconciliation. Not not as, hey, once we're reconciled, then, then we'll remind ourselves of the promises. No, this is actually a means to bring you together. To remind yourself and your spouse of the covenant you made before God and of that covenant that it points to in Christ. Lastly, number seven, we have unity. There is unity in this relationship. The two shall become one flesh. They are united. Romans 6, 5, If we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. 1 Corinthians twelve twenty seven. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Christian, God the Holy Spirit dwells in you. as We talked about in, in Corinthians. You are a temple. Glorify God in your body. Be united with the mind of God and the Word of God to understand. Be united in your pursuit of heavenly joys. In this area of being one flesh, husband and wife, be united in its purpose. In what you are communicating and understanding to one another, talk about that. Point yourself to that. Have your mind renewed by the Word of God. If you find yourself so uncomfortable and unable to see Christ in any of the ways we've discussed, you are likely informed by the world and not by the Lord. Have your mind renewed. Confess where you have a wrong view of what it means to be one flesh. Recognize that God is the creator and the author of sex. Renew your thinking according to His Word. Put on Christ-likeness. Put on church-likeness in your pursuit of joy and of delight in being one flesh. Now, if you're sitting there and you are completely incapable and lost at what we're talking about, this whole Christ and His church thing, 
If you've never known your need to be united to Jesus Christ and indwelt by His Holy Spirit, to be made a partaker of His life and His death and His resurrection, you must believe in and believe upon the work of Jesus Christ that you've heard about today for the forgiveness of your sins. You must be made right with God through His Son. You must turn away from your sin and hate it as God hates it. See sexual immorality with hatred and with disgust and delight yourself in the most pure and the most lovely and the most wise and the most beautiful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. Brothers and sisters, beloved, let us make these things a pursuit in our marriage. Let a passion burn in your souls for this. Not not some carnal, worldly thing. No, let a passion burn in your souls for this, that Christ and His glory be exalted and be looked to. May you be able to say, return, Lord Jesus, even now. The glories and the pleasure and the delights that we experience, they pale in comparison to what we have in heaven. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your perfect gift of oneness and marriage. Forgive us, Lord. Have mercy upon us for the ways we have defiled and maybe are defiling in our minds, in our actions, in our hearts towards our spouses. May you work and breathe forth your Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin and to show us Christ in you and afresh that we may trust in Him and see His glory and see His beauty and be delighted in the love of your Son and in the Gospel of our Lord and Savior. Use these things this day for our good and for our glory. For the work of your Son in this earth, Lord, whose name is matchless love.